Good evening. Bastille Day protests. Biden says he'll find the money to pay for a three and a half trillion dollar budget and infrastructure bill, while the Republicans call it a freight train to socialism. We talk with a great environmental activist and is Pfizer's greed killing these and other stories. And I wanted to add as well, later on in the cast, we're going to be hearing from uh, Borough President, now almost mayor-elect. He just has to uh, put a ribbon on the package on Election Day. Uh, Eric Adams talks about his plans for cleaning up crime in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. And riot police deployed tear gas to dispel a Bastille Day demonstration following President Emmanuel Macron's speech on COVID-19 restrictions and vaccination given the day before in Paris today. And protesters could be seen kicking tear gas canisters back at police as police push them away from the scene using riot shields. During Macron's speech, he strongly encouraged that people get vaccinated as soon as possible, as well as promising harsh restrictions for those unwilling to do so. July 14th is the National Day of France. It commemorates the 1789 storming of the Bastille, an infamous prison in Paris. At the time filled with political prisoners, it was torn down and represented the day the poor France stood up for their rights. And supporters of slain Haitian President Jovenel Moise gathered Wednesday near the National Palace in Port-au-Prince to honor him, placing multiple floral wreaths near the palace gates. A man said as he placed a wreath on the ground, we will never forget you. Another female supporter said she believes the president's assassination was political. At the United Nations, countries paid tribute today to this slain president and expressed solidarity and support for the Haitian people. Flanked by a portrait of Moise and a bouquet of white lilies and hydrangeas, UN officials said the world body was joining the people of Haiti in their mourning. May I now invite representatives to stand and observe a minute of silence in tribute to the memory of His Excellency Jovenel Moise. We cannot allow this tragedy to erase gains made or derail the future of Haiti. It is our responsibility to support the people of Haiti as they seek to uphold the rule of law and justice. Today we say goodbye not only to a head of state, but to a friend, a father, a husband. Under his watch, Haiti saw the eradication of the transmission of cholera. The last recorded case was reported in February 2019. Next year, we will be able to announce the full eradication. We would have wanted to witness this achievement together with President Moise. It was not to be. And that was the scene today at the United Nations. Meanwhile, the list of suspects in the July 7th assassination of the Haitian president continues to grow. Authorities issued three new arrest warrants today on charges of murder, attempted murder, and armed burglary. Police have described a trio of men who 
are the subjects of those warrants, armed and dangerous. At least one of the wanted men has been identified as a member of a political party opposed to Moise. Police Chief Charles said police have arrested 18 Colombians and three Haitians in connection with the attack. An official at the United States Drug Enforcement Administration has admitted that at least one of the suspects in custody was a confidential source to the agency. The DEA has denied involvement in the assassination. And in Washington, top Democrats announced last night they'd reached agreement on an expansive $3.5 trillion budget blueprint that'll pour money into addressing climate change and expanding Medicare, combined with nearly $600 billion in new spending on physical infrastructure contained in the bipartisan plan, which omits many of the Democrats' highest ambitions. The measure is intended to deliver on President Joe Biden's $4 trillion economic proposal. Today, Biden met with a bipartisan group of the nation's governors and mayors to discuss infrastructure. When asked about the deal, he said they have an agreement. And uh, it's a bipartisan plan. I think we're in good shape. There may be some slight adjustments to the, of the pay for us, and that's going to get down to what the, what the Congress wants to do. I've laid out how I think we pay for it, and we, we have an agreement. We have an agreement. There may be slight changes. I'm not sure. What may happen, exactly how, but it's going to be paid for. And that was the president. But the GOP leadership had a different opinion on the massive spending package. Senate Republican Whip John Barrasso says spending so much money will just feed inflation. Well, um, to me, that $3.5 trillion that was announced last night really is uh, the, the extreme Democrats' freight train to socialism. And the American people are going to end up paying for that in many different ways. There's going to be massive tax increases, which are going to hit every American family. There's going to be what we're seeing now with record inflation. And the current inflation numbers are nothing compared to what's going to happen if you try to put this much money uh, into, a, into the economy. And people are going to pay for it through regulations, which are going to make things a lot more expensive uh, to do any sort of activity. So the, the taxes and the regulations are to me, going to sink the economy. And we had had a strong, growing economy prior to coronavirus. And that is John Barrasso, the uh, Senate whip for the Republicans. Um, oh, pardon me. Uh, meanwhile, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve Board, said U.S. banks were ready to intervene if inflation spiraled out of control and that he expected price increases to be temporary. Inflation has increased notably and will likely remain elevated in coming months before moderating. Inflation is being temporarily boosted by base effects as the sharp pandemic-related price increases from last spring drop out of the 12-month 12 12-month 12 calculation. In addition, strong demand in sectors where production bottlenecks or other supply constraints have, have limited production has led to especially rapid price increases for some goods and services which should partially reverse as the effects of the bottlenecks unwind. Right. And that's the Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell. Powell's comments come after data was released showing the United States Consumer Price Index rose 5.4% in June compared with a year ago. That raises concerns the U.S. economy may be overheating. And Steve Donziger is a civil rights attorney who's taken on the fossil fuel industry. He's known for his legal battles with Chevron and has been under house arrest for almost two years. Mitchell Cohen has the story. It's really 
unbelievable that I've been, as an American human rights lawyer, in house arrest for 700 days without a conviction on a misdemeanor. This is a new corporate playbook to silence the hell out of anyone who takes on the fossil fuel industry. It goes way beyond me. Every person who lives in this country and in the world needs to pay attention to this. If they get away with it with me, it's going to start impacting a lot of other people. It already has. The fossil fuel industry is under enormous stress right now. The planet knows that industry needs to be phased out, and they are attacking people like me and others who try to hold them accountable with a ferocity that our country has never seen before, up to the point where they're literally privately prosecuting me criminally. Chevron is prosecuting me criminally through a corporate law firm called Seward and Kessel, appointed by a federal judge. They've deprived me of my liberty in 700 days. So the idea that there's a corporate prosecution happening in America should scare the bejesus out of everyone. Pay attention, please. And I need support and I need help. And my clients in Ecuador who are literally dying because of Chevron's pollution also need help. Please, please. Please join our campaign. Go to DonzigerDefenseOneWord.com. Sign up. If you can't give our defense fund money, it's, it takes money to do this kind of case and to fight these monsters. But whatever it is, whether you can give or not, please join us, DonzigerDefense.com. In Washington, the singer behind hits Driver's License and Deja Vu is Olivia Rodrigo, young woman. She met President Joe Biden in the White House today as part of the White House drive to convince young people to get vaccinated. And she made a brief statement to the press before the meeting. Uh, joining us in the briefing room is actress and multi-platinum recording singer-songwriter Olivia Rodrigo, who traversed red lights and stop signs to see us. If you know her music, you'll get that dad jokes there um, thing. And we just want to thank you for using your platform and your voice for elevating the important issue of young people getting vaccinated. She's here today to meet with the president and Dr. Fauci later this afternoon, but she agreed to come say a quick hello to all of you first. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Olivia. Hi. Um, first, I want to say I am beyond honored and humbled to be here today to help spread the message about the importance of youth vaccination. Uh, I'm in awe of the work President Biden and Dr. Fauci have done and was happy to help lend my support to this important initiative. It's important to have conversations with friends and family members, encouraging all communities to get vaccinated and actually get to a vaccination site, which you can do more easily than ever before, given how many sites we have and how easy it is to find them at vaccines.gov. Thank you, Jen, for having me today. Uh, and thank you all for helping share this important message. It's so appreciated. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Olivia, so much for joining us. Good luck with your great day. And that was earlier today, singer-songwriter and actress Olivia Rodrigo urging young people to get the shot. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. And here in the city, ACT UP New York led a protest that blocked traffic in front of the offices of the Pfizer Pharmaceutical Company on 42nd Street today. They were chanting, Pfizer Greed Kills. We need to make sure that uh, drug corporations no longer get exclusive patent rights to drugs and medications and vaccines that we produce with our tax dollars. It's our money, it's our vaccine, and we have a right to expand access so that everybody is safe. 14 billion doses now, the world is waiting. 14 billion doses now, the world is waiting. 
We're here today because the world needs 14 billion doses of life-saving COVID vaccines. But across the continent of Africa, only 1.7% of the population has been vaccinated and thousands of people are dying unnecessarily. And that catastrophe is preventable. Free the vaccine around the world. Free the vaccine around the world. And the protesters say Pfizer is getting away with murder by allowing only rich countries to get the lion's share of its COVID-19 vaccines. Roughly 85 percent of all COVID shots administered have been in higher income countries. And unless pharmaceutical makers allow greater access to their formulas now, many millions of lives, they say, will and can be lost and should be saved. James Love is director of Knowledge Ecology International, a group that studies drug pricing and patents. He does agree that corporate greed is forcing up prices of drugs to unaffordable levels. Prices for new drugs, particularly those for severe illnesses such as cancer, are very aggressive. And the only way people for some of these treatments can get access to them is if they have an insurance company that will pay, if not all, most of it. And even then, it can really be crushing if you have to pay a significant copay. And the reason for that is the companies can charge whatever they want. And because they reckon that a fair amount of people in the United States have insurance, the question they have in their mind is, how much will the insurance company fork over? If you don't have great insurance, you're going to be left out. But even if you do have insurance, your medical premiums for your insurance are going to be high. So it's a system that's really out of control right now because the companies have complete freedom to charge whatever they want. Are they going to say that's how the mighty American research and development drug system got founded by charging enough money that we could pay for the research and development? It is true that if you have big profits and high prices, that's an incentive for people to invest in the development of new products. But it has practically nothing to do with what companies actually spend in any given therapy. There's a fair amount of drugs, for example, where the government had funded the, the preclinical research and even some of the clinical trials. And the prices are also super aggressive for those products as well. It's nothing for a company to make $15 billion a year off a drug. We're paying too much right now relative particularly to what the companies are investing. The idea of off-label drugs and the what's going on as far as Wall Street. One thing they'll do is they'll take a product that is an older drug, that's a generic drug, but there's only one supplier, and it'll have a pretty low price because at one point there was competition. They'll buy the company or they'll buy the product. And then they jack the price up, and it'll take a while for another generic to come in the market. In the meantime, they can really milk it. Another thing they might do is they might either get a patent or an orphan drug indication for a new indication for an older medicine, which allows them to charge really high prices. And sometimes you can take a drug that costs $100, and you can jack up the price to $20,000, dollars $50,000, depending on what's going on. So there's cases like that that are not really subject to any kind of oversight. I think the bigger problems myself are the prices associated with new drugs that are actually good, the drugs that actually work, because those are the ones that you really don't want to go without. If you have breast cancer, you can't really avoid taking the very best breast cancer drugs that are out there if you want to have the best shot at surviving. When you have drugs that are effective and you have a really severe illness, that's where there exists the biggest problems. Well, how does that work in other countries? Let's say we were in England or even Switzerland or Mexico. What foreign countries do, they'll decide at what price they will reimburse a drug at. You can sell it for whatever you want in in England, for example, but the government won't reimburse the drug to the national system unless they negotiate a price they think is acceptable. So they link the reimbursement for the product to some agreement on the price. The problem you'll have in some of those countries is it may take a while 
before a product that's on the market in the United States is on the market in that country. So for cystic fibrosis, for example, there was a big lag between the drugs that were really working well and were breakthrough drugs in the United States that were actually available to patients in England. And that's like a familiar story outside the United States. It's one of the defenses that drug companies have in the current system. They say, you get the best drugs faster. You also pay a lot more. We're in favor of is reforming the system of incentives in such a way that you just don't even bother to grant monopolies in the first place, but you have a system of cash rewards for products that are invented, which are good. And the amount of money the government sets aside and rewards people, drug developers, is large. It's robust, but it's determined by the government, not solely by the developer. And you can tailor the incentives in a way that are a lot more efficient. So you're really targeting the money on products that not only work, but advance healthcare outcomes over existing therapies. What about the Biden administration? I've been pleasantly surprised so far by the Biden administration. We expected uh, President Biden to be very close to the drug companies based on his previous time he was in the Senate and some of the actions he took as vice president. But since he's been president, it's actually encouraging to see what he's done. On last Friday, for example, he stopped one of the Trump administration's proposals on the pricing of government-funded drugs, which is a really welcome action by Biden because Trump was trying to make it so you couldn't challenge the pricing of a, a drug invented on a government grant, and Biden stopped that from going forward, which was really good. So we've been so far so good with Biden, but we have to see we're just in the, in the beginning of this administration. And that's James Love. He's a director of Knowledge Ecology International, and that deals with drug pricing and patents. And the family of Andrew Brown, an unarmed black man who was fatally shot by sheriff's deputies in North Carolina, says he died because of the officer's intentional and reckless disregard of his life. That's according to a $30 million civil rights lawsuit filed today. Family lawyers made the announcement. This morning, we filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of the Brown family, the estate of Andrew Brown, in the Eastern District of North Carolina. Justice delayed will not be justice denied. I told y'all that. And that now that we have filed a federal lawsuit, let me very be very clear that I and this team have compulsory authority, federal subpoena authority, to get all the videos, right. all the tapes, all the recordings, yeah. all the records. Yeah. Now we get the process and the power of the courts to subpoena those uh, SBI documents, to subpoena those videos, to make those things public. We anticipate doing that. From this date, of course, uh, there will be a scheduling order that, that's put out. We will confer. Uh, they will have to respond to the lawsuit. And that was earlier today. Andrew Brown Jr. was killed April 21st by county sheriff's deputies while they were serving drug-related warrants at his Elizabeth City, North Carolina home. Several deputies surrounded Brown in his BMW before the car backed up and moved forward. They fired several shots at and into his vehicle. He was killed by a bullet to the back of the head. Lawyers for the Brown family said the shooting was unjustified because Brown was trying to drive away, not toward the deputies. And in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced a new jobs program to stem the issue of uh, crime in central Brooklyn aimed at preventing crime before it happens. He described the three clusters of activities he's planning at a church in Brooklyn. There are three main clusters of opportunities. Number one is employment opportunities. We have summer youth jobs for uh, 15 to 24, which are people who are in uh, school uh, but need a summer job. We then have permanent jobs that are trained jobs to real careers. These are not just uh, minimum wage 
uh, first-tier jobs. These are trained jobs for tradesmen, carpenters, bakers, electricians, done uh, through what's called the Consortium for Worker Employment. That's the first piece is jobs. Second piece is community-based services, mental health services, family crisis center, wraparound services. And the third piece is violence interrupters, anti-violence activity, anti-violence groups uh, connected with hospitals and doing street outreach programs. And the reason we have to get back to work is we're now doing breakout sessions on each of those three groups, uh, three areas to put together networks on the ground to provide those cluster of services. And that was the governor today. In total, Cuomo said that over 4,400 jobs would be brought to central Brooklyn. That includes 2,000 temporary summer youth employment positions for people aged 15 to 24 and 2,400 long-term positions in trades like carpentry, baking, and electrician work, the governor said in a partnership with the Consortium for Worker Education. Assembly member Diana Richardson, who was among the politicians who were present at the press conference, was asked about her previous signing on to a demand for Cuomo's resignation over allegations of sexual harassment. A question caused some uproar. I'm here today with the governor because politics is politics, business is business. And at the end of the day, we have a job to do to show up for the people of the great state of New York. With all due respect, ma'am. That question is inappropriate for the topic of this press conference. As you have heard eloquently put from my partners, as well as the governor, we are in a state of emergency. This is not the time for us to be in our emotions and people's personal endeavors. This is a time for us to be solution-oriented and focused. And what I just said is the statement that Senator Myrie agrees with as well. Next question. Next question. And please, let me just say, <laughs> let me just say to the press that is in the room, if you are going to ask questions here today, please remain on topic because we are talking about communities that are in pain. We are talking about gunshots that are, that are ringing and we want to remain on topic. We want to remain solution oriented. We don't want divisive questions. All right. That is going to take us off of the solution that we need to focus that is at hand. Let me ask next. <laughs> and that was Assemblyman uh, Richardson, Diana Richardson from Central Brooklyn earlier today, responding to questions about her uh, support of the governor and appearing with the governor after signing on to a, uh, a petition calling uh, for an investigation of the governor for his role in alleged sexual harassment problems. Cuomo alleged to work in full partnership with Adams, who is favored in the mayoral general election to create real change. Both men stress the urgency of taking action. Adams said he wants to establish a clear line for police in the city. We're finding that there's a reluctancy for judges to follow the law where they can issue bail. Violent of offenders, particularly repeated violent offenders, who have made it clear that they're going to continue to harm innocent people. Our criminal justice system should not be protecting them, should be protecting the innocent people of the city. That's what I believe, that's what I have fought for and I will continue to fight for. We're talking about fair beating, we're talking about trespassing, a lot of these are quality of life issues that affect everyday New Yorkers. Right, and those are quality of life issues. 
And those are the issues that we should sit down and talk about. How do we prevent that? Because I jumped the turnstile because I didn't have money to get to work. <laughs> so we should look at what is causing the uh, jump in the turnstile. Should we have a reduced fare metro card that impacts other families? We don't want to criminalize poverty. And there's a clear line for me between violent crimes, predatory crimes, and those crimes what people are doing because of the circumstances they're in. There's a clear line for that. It sounds like you want more people in jail and more people arrested. Is that a fair sum? Right now, I understand you want prevention, but right now, is that what you want? Uh, I don't believe anywhere in my dialogue that I stated that at all. And for a person who spent uh, 22 years advocating on not having heavy-handed policing. I'm a little surprised you would say that because my record speaks for itself. Jail should be for violent criminals, not for people who did not get the opportunities they deserve. That's what I'm saying. I want to be clear on that. That type of question, the way you posed it, is part of the problem. That was, that's what makes the dialogue uh, oppositional. So you're saying you're in favor of people putting people in jail. And jail is bad. Obviously, nobody wants to put anybody in jail. I've closed more state prisons than any governor in the history of the state of New York. You do everything you can to keep a person out of jail, starting with when they're young and in a community that doesn't have the services and the education and the opportunity, which is what we're going to be talking about now. Spotting those families in crisis, spotting the mental health issue, spotting the substance abuse, providing a job. So the young person says, oh, there's an alternative to the gang. I can actually get a job. Do that. A criminal justice laws that say this is a minor crime. This is a major crime. This is diversion. You want to put as few people in jail as possible. But if you have a dangerous individual who can hurt people, then yes, there is a place for a criminal justice system. And that was Governor Cuomo putting his two cents in after Mayor-elect, soon-to-be Mayor-elect Adams had his statement. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, July 14, 2021. The news was uh, produced with uh, Linda Perry and Mitch Cohen. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.